Executive Director of the Massachusetts Newscast, the official podcast of the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition, with host myself, Joe Rossi, and co-host and vice chair of the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition, Tim Williams. Welcome to another episode of the No Flood Newscast. My name is Joe Rossi, your co-host and chair of the Massachusetts Coastal Coalition, and with me is my co-host and vice chair of the Coastal Coalition, Tim Williams. Tim, uh, thanks for jumping on during uh, quarantine. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it. Uh, and with us today is Nick Lamparelli from Rethought Insurance, uh, and we're going to take a deep dive today into different perspectives on private flood and its role with the National Flood Insurance Program. So, uh, Nick, thank you. Why don't you, uh, thanks for being on, and why don't you uh, kind of tell us a little bit about your role uh, and what you do at Rethought, and what Rethought is. Appreciate being on here to talk about it. Uh, crazy times that we live in, um, normally moving into hurricane season would only be focused on flood, but now we have all these other things to worry about. But uh, as you alluded to, Joe, Rethought Insurance, we're in the flood business. We're a tech-centric MGA that's uh, focused uh, on climate risk, but predominantly flood, both on the residential side. I would say more so on the commercial side. I think that's probably where our bread and butter is right now. And the approach that we're trying to take is to use uh, modern-day technology and analytics to get to a location-based risk analysis for every single property that comes across our desk. So our approach is to focus on, we, I, I, we have a saying and it's something to the effect of, we'd like to get the uh, conclusion of an engineer, a civil engineer that examines and surveys a property without actually sending the engineer. So our <laughs> technology is completely geared around assembling it in such a way that we can be fairly accurate in our risk assessments um, but also move quickly. In general, in the private market, what are you seeing out there right now? Activity. Um, there, from private side, I think there's, we're, we're sort of coming to a general agreement that the private market can probably, that there's an opportunity and that the private market itself is uh, doing, you know, can, can filter those opportunities out and supply some capacity to them. So uh, I, there's that general recognition. I think there's still uh, no, uh, scarring from prior flooding events that you know makes for the private market still a little bit uncomfortable and throwing out too much capacity to cover flood. Uh, you know, we we have had some hurricanes uh, after a really quiet period. Um, and I, I think that there's still this assumption that, yeah, we have a lot of tools. Yes, we have a lot of analytics. Yes, we have a lot of models, but they haven't quite gotten it right yet. And we don't want to be in front of that train when it leaves the station. So, so, so Nick, um, to that degree, has yep. the private market sustained the type of losses that the NFA, NFIP has 
in the past due to a catastrophic event or have they not kind of absorbed that financial hit yet? <clears throat> I, think, I think Harvey was really devastating to the private market. Um, Harvey is one of those, Hurricane Harvey, which hit the Houston area, was one of those events where uh, I saw books of business, you know, private carriers that were writing large commercial and, you know, and, and for, those, for those that are listening, um, these weren't monoline flood policies. These were commercial property policies that happened to have flood coverage embedded within the, the, the policy terms, and they really took it on the chin. And when we dug into those, what we found is in a lot of cases, they were basically giving the coverage away. You know, these mm. were X zones, uh, interior Houston, away from the coast. <laughs> and for some reason, the, I think the, the assumption is if you're not on the coast, then you're not susceptible to the catastrophic type of flooding. And Har Harvey, Harvey kind of set us back a little bit in that regard. I will, I will tell you that uh, from my perspective, there, uh, you know, Harvey, from a modeling and analytics perspective, perspective, Harvey is well understood. The uh, Houston is basically a, a, a fishbowl, you know, and mm -hmm. water does accumulate there. It's flat. It has no place to go. A lot of bayous. It's well known that if it rains a lot, Houston will flood. So that shouldn't have come as a surprise. I think it was just predominantly, um, you know, underwriting folks on the commercial side that got very comfortable with the fact that it is surge that storm surge from hurricanes that caused catastrophic flood loss and not necessarily a lot of precipitation. So yeah, the, the pr private market did take it on the chin, but I think those that didn't have claims or those that came in afterwards, they don't have those scars. And I think they're a little bit more open-minded. So, you know, Nick, you bring up an interesting, uh, you bring up an interesting point um, looking at understanding those risks so from your perspective, both from your position at Rethought um, all the way to what is going on currently in the private flood market. Now, obviously, there's a ton of different private flood options out there. But in general, how do you specifically, but then how does private flood in your understanding um, both understand a risk and rate, make a rate for that? So... Uh, our approach specifically, and, and I think we are different than the, how the rest of the market kind of thinks about this, is we are flood zone agnostic. Um, I, for, for a couple generations, I think the FEMA flood zone have done an adequate job of, of essentially bucketing flood risks into, you know, these large buckets that did, you know, again, fairly good job given the technology that was there and, and the the, and the, the, the really high burden that was required to, to generate these flood maps, it was adequate for a couple generations. But these are really big buckets. So, you know, the, the example I always give when I, when I uh, go to reinsurers and try to discuss our approach versus, versus others is that take three areas of the country. Take coastal California, coastal Florida, and coastal Maine. In all three areas, you will have what are, you know, what, what we have is the, you know, severe, significant V zones. But are those three zones the same? Are those three geographies the same? And no one can possibly say yes. 
Florida gets exposed to potentially Cat 5 hurricanes. Maine does not. California absolutely doesn't get exposed to almost any tropical weather. And so the idea that you would take these three really disparate geographies and kind of group a coastal property in the same bucket, for us, seemed like an opportunity. Because it seemed like, okay, well, obviously the buckets are too broad, too general, and we should be able to go in with modern technology and kind of segment those out into something that's finer. You know, we will still have buckets, but maybe we can make in a V zone, maybe there are 10 additional buckets that we can kind of group properties and say, if you fit into one of these groups, then you're, how you get rated will kind of be the same for within those micro buckets, but it'll be different, a bucket, uh, bucket from bucket, even if you're in a, what, a quote unquote V zone. So we've done that for V zones and for A zones. Our approach is to really focus on the property itself. Uh, and, th and that's another flaw with the A and the V zones uh, is that that is describing the hazard only. It's only describing the type of event that's come in the potential flood depth, but it doesn't tell you anything about the property itself. You can have a property that's up on stilts and the water may go right underneath it. It doesn't describe that at all. And so our approach has always been um, to focus on the hazard itself. Let's bucket those up and try to understand them um, in, in much finer groupings, but then to extend beyond that, what's the, pro what's the property like? What is the building made out of? Uh, how much, where will the water get exposed within those structures? How much damage would it cause? And then we apply insurance terms to that. And so I think that, that has been our approach. And we think our approach is fairly accurate in, in going property by property. Not perfect, but fairly accurate. And I think a lot of folks in the uh, private flood market are trying to do some combination of, you know, uh, an extension, taking the FEMA flood zones, and, you know, go, using some sort of analytical tool to kind of pull out the stuff that really doesn't belong in there or is, is being really punished by FEMA or an approach closer to what it is that we're trying to do. So I think on, on both sides, the, the approach is that the FEMA flood zones have done a marvelous job for a couple generations when they first started, but now we're in a, in a different era where we have way more tools where we can really get in, um, be, you know, highly segmented, risk location focused, and, and we can say uh, this, you know, property A has a particular uh, set of, you know, loss uh, potential, and the property right across the street or in the next yard has a different loss potential. That's, that's how fine, finally we're trying to cut the market. Mm. Wow. Um, so I guess to follow up on my uh, for the second part of my question, which you've, you've certainly that I mean, that is really it's really detailed. And I think that's that's where I get concerned. I think Tim would share these concerns. I think that's where we get concerned sometimes from a agent's perspective or from a consumer, especially consumer perspective is are these other private companies out there, whether it be Lloyd's of London, some of the other um, you know, carriers in the United States, the cover holders, um, are they really doing their diligence when it comes to truly underwriting the risk? What's your opinion on that? 
I've seen it both ways, guys. I've seen it. <clears throat> I've seen situations where um, we've had some accounts. I, I had one recently um, in in California, in the in Palm Desert area, where um, it didn't exactly fit the guidelines where we have binding authority. So we had to uh, kick it over to um, you know our reinsurer to get them to approve it. And they went over, like, they really went over this one and were like, you know, uh, I know it's in the desert, but I'm worried about how the snow is going to run off the mountain and, oh, that swimming pool looks like it's above the property line and the, the water could flow down. So we get that occasionally, but I would say most of the time there isn't a lot of due diligence. A lot of it is we are overwhelmed with the number of submissions we need, you know, we need to quickly get through these. If it doesn't neatly fit into this box, we're going to decline it or we're going to have a really significant rate on that. So we're getting there, right? Like it, a lot of the technology is complex. I wouldn't say it's new. Um, we've been the same technology that we use to model earthquake and we model hurricane and hail. That's been around for a couple decades now. Mm. But to do it for flood requires a higher level of geospatial technology. And we're just not there. Those companies are just not there. I mean, we actually founded the company on that specific premise was if we could, if we could get uh, the best geospatial technology, we would have an information advantage. Mm. And so I would say, you know, seeing how some of our competitors do it. Yeah. There's some, there are some properties that, you know, we're competing against pricing. It's just like, wow, how did they get that pricing? You know, like what tools do they use? Because, you know, we're using all of these tools and we think that the risk is much higher than they think it is. So it's a, it's a hard question to ask, a uh, hard question to answer, Joe, because I'm not there on a day-to-day -day basis. But I think the scarring is there. You know, a lot of these underwriters are taking it. You know, Lloyd's especially have really had some massive losses when it comes to flood. And so they... And on, on one hand, they are trying to do a super underwriting, you know, kind of kind of work on that. On the other, what what you know, invariably, what ends up happening is uh, you can't collect enough premium. You do you do super underwriting. You're trying to get all the low risk stuff, but guess what? All your competitors want the low risk stuff too. So there's no margin there. And at some point or another, um, you start to claw for premium, you start to look for yield and you start to have to take more risk, but they're using the same approach that they use for the low risk stuff on the higher risk stuff. And invariably they start building a portfolio that becomes a powder keg and gets exposed. So um, it's there from a consumer perspective. I, uh, that is one of the drawbacks of the private market is the history of insurances. Once they get a big claim, they retrench. And that is that that is not going to go away. So one of the things, Nick, I wanted to follow up on that is the concern of you know some of these private companies in the in the reinsurance side. You know, if all of a sudden the underwriters come in and say we're not letting you do it anymore, you know, some of these don't seem to have the backup there to follow up with that. If you know what I mean. So I just wanted to give you comments a little bit about what reinsurance is looking like in that marketplace. And, you know, I know they're the good carriers and people like you are out there vetting that and kind of going through that process. 
the reinsurers have a massive advantage in that um, they've been around for a long time. So you take take uh, let's let's uh, exclude Berkshire Hathaway for a second, and let's look at like Munich Re, Swiss Re, and Score, for instance. So they I think they would be the top three outside of Berkshire Hathaway. So full disclosure, I, I we I do have a working relationship with both Munich Re and Swiss Re, and I could tell you that. These are conservative European reinsurers that have been doing insurance for a hundred plus years. So they've seen it all. And uh, unlike uh, carriers in the private market, unlike Lloyd's of London, um, they're, you know, I think one of the reasons why they like working with us is that we both see an opportunity. Um, I think both of them have committed um, you know, going forward that they will make capacity available because they do see the opportunity. And, and, you know, for, for both you guys and for, for, for everyone that's listening, you know, when we hear flood, you think of the news and you see like, you know, homes getting pulled into the ocean, you know, rivers overflowing their banks, right? But if you think of the entire property schedule, the inventory of the United States, let's just use the U.S., the vast majority, like it's not even close, the vast majority of properties would be classified as low risk. Most of them very low risk. You know, I'm looking, I'm looking outside my window now, I'm in Naples, Florida, and I was walking around the neighborhood, and I'm like, this is low risk area. Even though we're five miles from the coast, even though we're in Cat 5 hurricane area, this is low risk area. Like this, this, this neighborhood is completely set up to drain water. And even though water may accumulate, all of the properties have gentle sloping up to the stairs. It is not catastrophic. Even if water got in here, um, it, you're talking about potentially inches of water. So it's not that the risk is zero. It's that it's, it's low risk. And, and outside of Florida, it drops off tremendously. My estimate is that probably you know, 85 to 90% of all the properties in the United States would, would fall in that bucket very low risk um there's just it, there's just not going to be the types of events or the way the structures are built that you're going going to get flood so it's going to be infrequent and when it does happen it's not going to be severe then there's that other 10 or 15 percent where it's moderate you know so in that 10 or 15 percent maybe like half of that or a little or a little bit more might be moderate meaning uh, the frequency is higher, and it could be catastrophic if you get the right event at the right time. And then there's like 5% or maybe a little bit less that are might be considered uninsurable. And so from a reinsurer's perspective, they see that they sort of see the world this way, the same way that we see it. As long as you're not in that 5%, the rest is all manageable. The rest is, the rest is all risk management with the possibility that you can actually make it quite profitable. That if you're predominantly swimming in, you know, to use a flood pun, predominantly swimming in the um, 85 percent, roughly, that it's in the in the low risk bucket, you know, you should not have any catastrophic claims, and you should be able to. It, it's almost attritional, like like auto or homeowners, like you can actuarially kind of plan your book and your budget and your business out indefinitely into the future and you'll have other factors that might be driving um, the premium. So I think the reinsurers are in it for the long haul because uh, they have the 
assets, they have the capital backing, and they have the vision that they can make this a profitable line. And a lot of them, you know, especially being European, um, they're more socially conscious. So they look at their contribution to society as we can supply capital and get people back on their feet for these climate risks. So they don't want to, uh, you know, appear as though they're being hypocritical in offering flood and then yanking it back. So I think from a reinsurance perspective in the private market, I think the reinsurance capital is here. I think it's here to stay. And if we can, if I can prove this hypothesis, so everything that I'm spouting right now is a hypothesis. If this proves out over the next 5, 10, 15 years, they will continue to allow more and more of their capital to, to back these flood risks. Mm. So with all that being said, you know, I guess, again, from the consumer's perspective, um, you know, one of the big concerns is, okay, well, you know, like you said, what's going to happen over the next several years? Are, are carriers going to kind of say, you know, have a big event and all of a sudden the private flood, you know, there's, there's uh, those that may leave and the NFIP then becomes the place to go. And so I guess to, in, in, in understanding all those different pieces that you've mentioned, what does the NFIP, regardless of what happens with the private market, in your opinion, from your perspective, does the NFIP have a place to, to play here going forward in the future? There's a lot of, um, I shouldn't say there's a lot. There are a few, and I think you and I both know who, or all of us on this, uh, on the podcast know who those, they are, um, uh, companies, uh, private flight companies that say, oh, NFIP is going to be replaced by, entirely replaced by private in a few years. I mean, is that a realistic thought or will the NFIP always have a place to play here? That's realistic. For one thing, it's, it's a political entity now uh, in a lot, in a lot of ways, not FEMA, but the NFIP itself. It's a, and I think that it has, a, it has a place. Uh, for one thing you have um, the private market is not going to want to cover, like I said, somewhere between 10 and 15% of the properties. They're just, they're going to absolutely refuse to cover those. So those, those buildings are going to sort of be left in the lurch if there is no NFIP. Now, I think we can, I think we can haggle and debate on what the proper role of the NFIP is and whether they're charging enough money uh, or whatever. And I have strong opinions about what the NFIP should be and what they should do. Um, I don't think they're going to go away. I don't think they should go away. I think there is a role there. But, Joe, this reminds me of the conversation you and I had a couple of years ago when you were on my podcast. Um, and I, I th actually think I titled the podcast The 100-Year Problem. Um, and, and for some of these properties, the, the severe repetitive ones, for some of the inventory that's in the U.S. that's coastal, uh, was not architected or engineered to, uh, to kind of deal with flood, we kind of have, we might have a hundred year problem with that inventory, right? Like it's unless we bulldoze it and pay off the, uh, the property owners, which after this pandemic, I'm not sure where that money is going to come from. Those properties are going to be around. And, you know, unless we want um, vacant buildings littering our coastlines, they're going to be around. There's going to be something that's going to be inside of that. So there's going to have to be some flood coverage for it until the building's just so old that 
someone decides, whether the government or private decides it's not worth it anymore, and you, you know, you bulldoze it and you do something else with that land. So um, I think the NFIP will stick around for as long as there is a need for um, a consistent source of capacity to cover those properties. Now, with that said, I think my view of the NFIP is that uh, I prefer the flood re model that the UK has, which is every property can get flood insurance and they can get it from the private carrier. The private carrier then has a decision to make. They can either charge a premium for that flood coverage and absorb the risk, which again, in the UK, the vast majority of the properties are, can, can be classified as low, you know, low to low moderate risk. Um, the remainder of those properties, the ones that are in the moderate to high severe, the insurance carriers can feed that off to flood rate, which is like a, almost like an NFIP equivalent, not, not exactly the same, but you could, for, for giggles, you know, you could, you could say that they're kind of the same. And that's a better model because it facilitates, it, it, it's almost forces, it, it, it makes it easier, makes it easier decision for the property owner to get flood insurance and makes the transaction easier. NFIP coverage right now is monoline. It's outside of the traditional homeowner or pro commercial property um, application and purchasing transactions. So the, the customer experience with that is atrocious. The customer, the broker experience with that is atrocious. I have yet to meet one broker that says, yeah, I love, I love placing my flood business through the NFIP or through that process. It's, it's a nightmare for them to go through all of that. So the flood re is much more streamlined and better. And it's just done through the carriers. The claim is done through the carriers. And you have that entity that's sitting out there that's acting as a reinsurer for whatever it is that the, um, the, the carriers don't wish to seed off. So any risk that they wish to seed off, there's capacity there sitting there that can absorb it. So Nick, it's and to, I, I just think it's a better model. So it would be similar to like, you know, here in Massachusetts, the auto industry seeds, you know, higher risks to a pool, um, different concept a little bit, but same similar thing with flood re that we could see a model later on down the road with, you know, um, <clears throat> private carriers seeding something over to like the NFIP or whatever they decide to do. Yeah. The, the National Flood Program has they've, they've been they've been a valuable resource for a couple generations now, but you know it's we're we're talking about hundreds of millions of properties uh, across the United States with a lot of stakeholders, and you know you really can't have the federal government in this entity uh, having a business. They they're they're you know they're good for. Uh, a resource, right? Like capital and, uh, you know, capacity backing, but you don't want them to build a user interface and have customers or brokers having to interact with them on a day-to-day -day basis. They're not nimble enough to do that. The carriers have been around for hundreds of years. They're much more equipped and better at, um, adapted to, um, you know, dealing with customers on, on the transaction side and on the claim side, and they don't do it great but they do it much better than the NFIP does. So it's a much better model. That's really interesting. And I think the perspective of understanding 
how the NFIP plays into that, because I think the NFIP, and again, unlike other, and, and I think your rethought's a little different in this perspective, but most carriers are looking at, you know, the risk and flooding the insurance aspect themselves, where the NFIP is so expansive and, and includes mapping and grants and mitigation and all those different pieces. It's just difficult to imagine um, that those don't exist because, um, I mean, I think you would, you would agree, Nick, that um, when you do your modeling, a home that's been elevated because of a requirement by the NFIP is going to model better than a home that has not been elevated in theory. Is that a safe thing to say? It, it, uh, it absolutely will. The model is looking at the elevation of the property. And when it runs a simulation, it will, you know, it will generate a, an event that might have, you know, a seven foot depth. And if your property is built up to nine feet, you should have minimal to no losses on, on that particular property. So we have about five minutes left here. Uh, this went by so fast. And, and Nick, your insights on what's going on both with Private Flood, the marketplace right now, and what's going on and where we could be going is so insightful. And I think uh, our listeners are really going to appreciate that perspective. And kind of, um, and I'll throw it over to Tim for the very last question. Um, but my, my, my question, my last question for you is, you know, the National Flood Insurance Program proposes risk rating 2.0, which is going to change um, dramatically. And actually, our first podcast, we had Scott Giberson on from CoreLogic. Um, and those listening can go back to listen to that podcast where he talks about risk rating 2.0 and how that may change the National Flood Insurance Program to be more risk model based versus zone based. So going from a, a stepped system, whether you're in or out, to more of a graduated system on where your property is located. What do you see in this space? And you kind of alluded to it earlier in our conversation about the NFIP existing uh, going into the future, but what do you see in this space uh, in the next 10, 20, 50 years from now? Rating 2.0 is, was a move closer in kind to what we're trying to do at Rethought. So it is trying to get to more of a uh, risk, uh, you know, a, a location-based type of risk analysis for the flood. And I think ultimately that's, that's where you want it to go. So unlike other perils like fire or wind, where you can kind of group things into neighborhoods or zip codes, you can't do that with flood. So it has to be location-based in order to be fair with the premium. And so I like the trend towards that. But where, where, where this is going to – it becomes a political – more of a political thing, Joe, than whether it's right or wrong. I think it's right. But what ended up killing it was it becomes, it becomes more political. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example. So um, there was a Facebook group on flood um, that, I was that I was associated with, and I was educating them on risk rating 2.0. And, um, you know, someone from the Houston area ended up uh, direct messaging me, and we kind of went back and forth. I ended up giving her a flavor, like, okay, if – we use a modeled approach. This is roughly the premium that uh, I'm calculating. And that was like three times what she's currently paying. And so from a political standpoint, that's not going to pass. Like you will have politicians who will fight tooth and nail against it, even though it's the best way. 
And to them, it's like you cannot argue or have a conversation. Right now, the NFIP is based, is pricing is based off of a one in a hundred year event. When you do modeling, modelings, models consider events that are much more infrequent, but much more severe. So for Houston, for instance, a one in a hundred year event might mean something, but you know, I have to consider a one in a thousand year event. I have to consider a cat five hurricane with a much more, much massive, much more massive storm surge. And that kind of stuff's going to be really hard for people to understand. It's difficult for uh, seasoned professionals, but for the lay person and for politicians, the struggle between frequency and severity and dealing with low frequency events, but super high severe events, just look what's happening with the pandemic now. It's really hard for us to understand how these dynamics work. And from the public's perspective, I think they will fight it. And that's one of the reasons why I want to try to get the NFIP out of the consumer business and acting more as a reinsurer, because it'll be in the, in the best interest of the consumer, ultimately, all of them, to be able to do something like that. Great. Uh, Tim, do you have anything to follow up with or finish with with Nick? Yeah, I think what, what Nick said is, is, is spot on in, in my thoughts, and I think Joe would agree, is you kind of want them to get out of the consumer side um, stay in that reinsurance side, Nick. But I also see, you know, they're they're vital to the floodplain management aspect of it, which seems to be forgotten by a lot of people. You know, as, as Joe alluded earlier in the podcast, is keeping you know these homes to mandates, you know, to different flood base elevations, and kind of getting some of these homes to a different standard is is going to be key in the future. So I'd like to see NFIP kind of stay that way, if you if you agree, but keep on that floodplain management side to enforce these newer building codes and, you know, keep with the floodplain side. That out, Tim, couldn't they um, treat that part of the business, which is more, I would classify as more like an engineering um, uh, aspect, engineering model than, uh, you know, customer facing insurance model. So keep, allow them to keep doing that and maybe drag that back over to a pure FEMA thing maybe reclassify it, recategorize it, and keep the insurance part separate and away from the work that, the critical work that's being done on that side. So I, I, I agree it's critical. It's just that it seems like there's a disconnect between doing engineering work and doing offering insurance coverage. Completely agree. So Nick, I guess to finish up too, you keep bringing up these great points. I guess to finish up as well, what I would say is, you, you know, I think what we're hearing from you is that there is um, going to be a critical role for the NFIP. How that role um, looks in the future is just an evolution, not necessarily the elimination. So an evolution versus an elimination. Does that sound like an accurate statement? I think they bring a lot to the table. So why wouldn't we optimize what they can bring to the table? So versus rather than having them try to solve every problem in a you know broad way that's not deep why don't we focus on what they're what they can bring to the table that's really good and go as deep as we can and really maximize the you know the the, the solution and capabilities that they bring to the table great well uh this has been this has been excellent i think we really got a great insight on what's happening right now in the private marketplace how this private can play a role 
uh, and vice versa with the National Flood Insurance Program and how the consumer is only going to benefit from these, the evolution of these, uh, can, the continued evolution of these tools and resources. So Nick, I want to thank you so much for being uh, on the No Flood Newscast, uh, and we hope to have you on again, hopefully in a few months, and hopefully we're not doing it via Zoom. Uh, hopefully we're uh, either back in our studio or uh, getting together, uh, and uh, we're out of this uh, crazy quarantine we all find ourselves in. Guys, thank you so much for having me on your on your podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very much, Nick.